This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by Vivid Learning Systems and the Health and Safety Institute. This special edition of the podcast was recorded June 18th, 2020. My name is Jill James, the Health and Safety Institute's Chief Safety Officer. Today's episode is a memorial and reflection dedicated to the family, health and safety professionals, and workers whose lives and professions were impacted by the work, research, and advocacy of Dr. Eula Bingham, who passed away five days ago at the age of 90. Dr. Bingham began her career as a toxicologist. She was the first woman to head federal OSHA under the Carter administration. She was a fierce advocate for worker training, and if you've ever wondered how labeling hazardous substances got its start, well, that was Dr. Bingham too. There is so much more to her work and legacy, which is why I've asked Mark Catlin to join me today. Many of you listening know Mark. Some of you may recall him as a guest from episode 11, and many more of you know Mark as an industrial hygienist from Maryland. Many, many of us in this field regard Mark as our health and safety historian. Many of us have used, enjoyed, and taught with the historical health and safety films he's curated on his YouTube channel, including some on Dr. Bingham. Mark also knew and was mentored by Dr. Bingham, having first met her in 1989 when she came to Alaska to investigate worker health concerns during the early days of the Exxon Valdez oil spill cleanup. Mark, thank you for being here today and honoring Dr. Bingham's legacy. Thank you very much, Jill. Thanks for, for doing this. It's a great honor to be here and talk about and talk about Dr. Bingham. Hmm. So who was Dr. Bingham, Mark? She she was this um really larger than life figure, but when you got to know her, she was very down to earth and s- encouraging and supportive. And so she was a wonderful sort of mentor and probably mentored hundreds and hundreds of, of health and safety professionals in her in her day. And I was fortunate enough to be one of those. Yeah. So what was that first interaction like you, you in, in 1989? How did that come about? Well, I was working in, uh, I was working for a nonprofit doing occupational environmental health in Anchorage and the mm-hmm. Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in March of 1989. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and so there were, it, it was the first oil spill that actually had a lot of health and safety, worker health and safety as a focus. What had happened before that oil spill kind of in quick succession was the the uh, HAZCOM standard had passed. So workers had a right to know and employers had to provide information on hazardous exposures on the job. That that, that mm-hmm. was part of the oil spill. The benzene standard had recently been updated after a, a 10-year uh, fight and so the the new standard was was in a play in place and that was an issue during the oil spill was the benzene exposure from the weathered or from the crude oil and the weathered crude oil and then mm-hmm. the third one is the Hazwopper standard had just uh, gone into effect a few months before the final version and so mm-hmm. that also affected emergency response and and there was a there was an early question as to whether oil spills fell under Hazwopper and it was determined by both state and federal OSHA that it did. So, so those sort of three issues raised health and safety to a more prominent position than in any other oil spill before that. And also the, mm-hmm. how large it was in the state of Alaska. And I was working with um, the laborers uh, union, the building trades, and mm-hmm. a lot of their members were working on the oil spill. And we had actually been doing Hazwopper training uh, under a federal OSHA grant uh, for their members in the two years before the oil spill. And so... 
so we got then pulled into all, all sorts of questions about health and safety issues and protocols and procedures from uh, those workers who were out in the field who had been trained and who started calling back to their union office and started calling my office. And so hmm. we were we were then responding and trying to deal with this. It was a pretty chaotic time as you, if, if anyone has been involved in an oil spill or any of these other disasters that we've all faced mm -hmm. more recently, it's there's a lot of chaos. Well, we reached out to the uh, the laborers union at the international back in D.C. for assistance, and they created a they they put together a team of health and safety experts to come up and and assist us. And they needed to get a look at the what was happening out of Valdez and on the oil spill. And so they they said, well, we're going to send this team up, and you'll meet her and you'll work with her, and you know, and we'll see what we can do. And it was headed by Eula Bingham, and they had they had recruited her from the University of Cincinnati. This was about a decade after she left Federal OSHA, and yeah. and it was the first time I'd worked with her. And so we we met for breakfast at a hotel in Anchorage before we all flew to Valdez that day. And she had you know these penetrating questions about what was going on. She knew lots of people in the uh, in in both Exxon and other oil industries that were had been a part of uh, that were participating in the response, and so. Uh, you know, we were all, I was sort of in awe as a young hygienist, like, here's you, here's Dr. Bingham. And um, so you knew who she was before, before she, you met her that first time at that breakfast? Yeah, yeah. You knew of her legacy? Yeah, mm -hmm. I knew of her legacy. My my first boss uh, had worked for Fed OSHA for a long time and had had just would talk praises about Eula's work and huh. things that she had been doing during the Carter administration. And then I was also, uh, I worked, my first job was funded by one of her legacy programs, which was a New Directions training grant program, so that my first job was paid for by this funding that the union got through through Federal OSHA. And so wow. I didn't know her directly because of that, but her that program gave me my start in this profession. Wow. So running into her in 1989 and, and going over to this really immediate crisis of, of the oil spill and worker exposures was really quite amazing. And and so uh, to spend hmm. several days with her in pretty, uh, you know, pretty austere conditions because there there were no there were no places to stay. We stayed at one of the union reps' houses. We all slept on the floor. She got the bed because she was former head of OSHA. She and so she was she got the bed <laughs> and the rest of us slept on the floor around the house. Wow. And and she just let us you know through a series of meetings with the oil industry, with the state officials, with other people. Up and ask these really amazing, you know, good questions about the oil spill and what was being done to protect workers, and and uh, and and we had been raising questions like that both in Anchorage and a little bit in Valdez, and not getting a whole lot of traction. But having having Dr. Bingham next to us got everyone's attention and got people to actually answer questions or at least say they would go get information for us in a, yeah, in a way that serious. in a way that we could never get because she right. she had the legacy and she knew people and she had the respect of so many that uh, and so that was my that was my first time working with her and it's been it's been a joy ever since to have mm -hmm. spent time with her and and been helped by her yeah, so she really opened some doors for for your work at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. By by just the fact that she showed up and, as you said, right, asked the right questions. Yeah. You you had mentioned that she she was you know ten years past OSHA by the time that, um, that you met her, but her yeah. you know her career started way before that and even before even before OSHA as a toxicologist. What yeah. what do you know about about her work? Um, 
you know, as a toxicologist too. Yeah. Well, I had I had read some of her papers because she was she was well known in in uh, occupational health and toxicology for her work on uh, early on. She did a lot of work on on carcinogens, especially mm. uh, PAHs, and she had mm. she had done a lot of work in that area and had had led advisory committees and and other work before she went to work for OSHA. So so I had read her work, but. Um, you know, it's always different to read someone's work and then actually meet them and spend time yeah. working with them. And so, um, and I had known, again, then I had also was more familiar with her her work during her time as heading OSHA from both my, my first boss and other people that I had gotten to know who had worked uh, with her at the time. And so I, you know, I'd heard these wonderful stories about her her vision of what OSHA should be, could be. And, and, and what she tried to do in her time at OSHA. She left OSHA and then went back to the University of Cincinnati where she had come out of and, and, you know, and went back and resumed her public health work there. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it sounds like from from what I've been able to read and and videos. Thank you, by the way, for curating those <laughs> that I've been able to watch yeah. about her. That um, you know she was really surprised about this ask to head OSHA. Um, can you fill in some of those blanks as to you know like how did how did all that happen? How did it how did it happen that um, President Carter reached out to her? Yeah. Well, it's, it's been, it was interesting the last five, five or 10 years, I've, I spent more time with her. And a lot of it was because of my historical channel and work on gathering materials I was finding that involved her. And, and yeah. so I, I always sent her materials and we talked about those. And so she would, hmm. she would tell me stories I hadn't heard before. So the story, wow. the story on how she came to OSHA was very interesting because she was the first woman, uh, she was the first woman to head OSHA. And what she said was, she had gotten to know um, she had gotten to know a lot of, of union safety and health people. Tony Mazaki. She had gotten to know Dr. Epstein, who was famous for his asbestos work, and others because of her her health and safety work and her willingness to be on advisory committees and and involved in policy. And so um, and she she talked about a a, a a a trip to Sweden to look at occupational health in Sweden that was mm -hmm. that was uh, sponsored by some congressional uh, offices and the United Auto Workers in probably 1974 75 and she went with a whole group of of people from academia government and and unions to to spend a couple of weeks in Sweden talking to labor and management and government folks about how they did occupational health there. And she said that really was, was how I met a lot of the people that were involved later with the Carter administration and that they seemed to remember me and they reached out, reached out to me um, as, as a possible head of OSHA. She said she actually turned them down because because she yeah she turned him down because she said I was I had a I had a lot of success my career at the university was taking off I had a a brand new lab and a lot of financial support but she also said I was I was a newly divorced single mother and I had little kids and so I just couldn't see how I could go to OSHA and be um and be assistant secretary she said she finally uh realized that you know women and people that that essentially weren't white men weren't offered weren't often offered these kind of positions and that she had to say yes and so <laughs> she figured out how to make it work with a lot of help she said from her mother and relatives wow. and other folks who helped her back and then she did lots of travel back and forth from 
uh, from from Cincinnati area to D.C. and then home on the weekends. And so she said it was pretty hectic, but, you know, they made it work. And she, you wow. know, she did a remarkable amount of work for all of us in occupational health uh, mm -hmm. by taking on that role. Yeah. There's there you had you had mentioned, you know, your first job um, came by way of funding that she had advocated for. Yeah. And I've and I've heard a bit about um, the fact that she did a pretty big ask, not knowing it was sort of inappropriate about worker <laughs> training. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, I can. And there's actually a, there's actually a, a recording of her uh, that was put out the last couple of years by the Center to Protect Worker Rights where she expands on this story. So I, would, I, I know we're going to give people links to some of these recordings so people can yeah. go hear her speak in her own voice. And and I, I know toward the end of her life, she would she would tell me and others, she said, I want to I want to make sure my legacy is what I remember being, not somebody else tell, telling everybody what my legacy was. So she mm -hmm. spent a lot of effort wanting to be remembered in the way that she thought was important. So but I'll 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 remember the story as best I can and try to do her justice. So she um she would she had accepted the uh accepted the nomination to be the assistant secretary for OSHA and she was making her rounds among the uh, you know the the you know the the senators and the house members who were going to uh, who she would have to work with and who needed to approve her. And she um, she said she went to meet with Congressman Obi, who was on the budget committee, and he also had a strong interest in occupational safety and health and OSHA matters. And, mm -hmm. and at some point in their discussion where she was supposed to just get to know him and, and listen to him, he, he asked her what was the most important thing that she thought that she could do at her time. And she said... Uh, what what came out of what came out was she said I think we need a training program to train workers and managers and other other than uh, health and safety professionals we need to train other people about OSHA if we're going to have a broader reach and be able to have mm -hmm. more uh, you know accomplish more and apparently Obi came back and said how about two million dollars for a program <laughs> and she said okay and she said <laughs> and so she she said I was new to I was new to mm -hmm. this this world she said I got back to whatever office she was at within OSHA. And they said, you're not supposed to talk to Congressman about money. That's not something we do. That's not proper. And she said, well, he asked me and I just answered. So, and, and so Congressman Obi wow. put um, uh, $2 million, I believe was the number into the, in 1978 into OSHA's budget for a new directions training grant program to allow mm -hmm. uh, universities, unions, uh, employer associations to uh, to hire health and safety staff to try to with with an idea that they would it would be seed money and that these organizations would then continue the programs after the seed money was finished and the seed money was three to five years and so mm -hmm. so that that went into effect as this new directions grant program and that was what that was what funded my first job with the Allied Industrial Workers Union uh, that I got in 1981. Uh, pretty much after I got out of college and was looking for safety and health jobs. And so, uh, you know, there were probably hundreds of us who ended up working at one point or another in our early careers under that grant program, which, Fascinating. which, yeah. And so, you know, you have to, you know, you look back and you say, wow, I was so lucky to have had that opportunity. I worked for that union for three years and I did all my, I got a, industrial hygiene experience. I did factory inspections. I did sampling. I mm -hmm. I did I conducted classes for our members. I was involved in 
in you know lots of t what we call technical assistance requests where people would call you with questions i mm -hmm. i worked with our employers our and in labor management settings where we tried to like improve you know improve conditions and many times the employers for our union were happy to have our help because it was free consulting service and sure. so uh sure. so i had this and and the aiw the allied industrial workers union was a, originally an auto parts union but they represented uh, they had they had come to represent a much wider wider swath of of workers. So we had workers in foundries and auto parts plants, but we also had workers in grain elevators, and um, and in sort of office office work. And so it was a a, a really broad experience where I met a, I, I saw a lot of small employers, some large employers, and mm -hmm. it was a really it was a wonderful way to get started in this career. And then led me into the rest of my work for almost 40 years after that so wow. so thanks to wow. dr bingham for talking to to congressman obi and getting this program started a lot of <laughs> Isn't us that fam yeah. yeah so did that did that does that program live on today does it have a new name i'm i'm kind of guessing what it might be yeah it does it, it does live on it the the new directions program uh Continued on into after after Dr. Bingham left OSHA and, and when Ronald Reagan came in and he had various assistant secretaries, there was enough congressional support and other support for the program that it continued on. It dwindled. There, the money wasn't as much, uh, mm -hmm. and the focus changed some. But but the money actually continued on until the until the early uh, 19, um, 1990s before it sort of mm -hmm. finally ended. And actually, when I was working with the laborers union in Alaska. And I had moved to Alaska and gotten a job. And and we had, as I mentioned, we had done this Hazwopper training um, that was pre-oil spill. But that that was actually a, a New Directions training grant also. And so I worked with the labor union in Alaska, and we trained hundreds of, of construction workers about Hazwopper and getting... We thought we were training people to clean up hazardous waste sites, which there were many in Alaska. And they and the union saw this as a big source of potential work. They had seen the uh, the growth of the asbestos industry and saw the growth of hazardous yeah. waste work, but wanted it done safely. And so we were doing this training, and didn't realize that it would you know that didn't think about oil spills directly as a as a big area we'd work in. And it turned out it was so. Yeah. But but uh, when that program dwindled, uh, OSHA then in the nineteen um, in in the mid nineteen nineties restarted it. Uh, renamed it the Susan Harwood Training Grant Program. Yes. And then that program continues um, to today, until today. And the focus yeah. is different. Um, when, when I was under New Directions, the, the staff that were, that you, if you were hired under the grant, you were expected to do a full range of, say, occupational safety and health work. Uh, On-site mm -hmm. inspections, technical assistance requests, and teaching and training was was one part of it. The Susan Harwood program, for various mm -hmm. reasons, is focused almost entirely on uh, training and training yeah. numbers. And, and it's a much more um, narrow focused program than what I was lucky enough to work under. And uh, and I think to myself, if, if I would have worked under something that was more narrow, like the current program, would I have stayed in occupational health or, or might I have moved on? I was originally going to work in and larger environmental health issues. And I might have moved on, but because of the New Directions program and the work was so interesting that I, you know, I I made it my career, so. Yeah, yeah, um, you got to see a lot of everything. Yeah, yeah. Mark, you had mentioned that you've spent quite a bit of time with Dr. Bingham, it sounds like toward the end of her yeah. life and talking about her legacy. What were, what were some of those things that she wanted 
you know, that she wanted to be remembered for and, and to live on in her own words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's interesting because she, when she was the assistant secretary, she had a communications director who, um, who thought that, that videotaping a lot of her press conferences, she did a lot of press conferences, assistant secretary. And so oh. there's a, there's this large body of, of, of video recordings, which I've been able to find in the national archive. And she also had copies of things that I had never seen before that she had kept in her personal records that, that she provided. But, um, but so there's a, there's this really, uh, probably most extensive legacy of any assistant secretary up till probably David Michaels with uh, with uh, the Obama administration of, mm -hmm. about her public, you know, her, her, her public pronouncements and a lot of her work. So I, I would think that, I mean, I think the New Directions program was something she was really proud of and proud of what, mm -hmm. of, of that it really accomplished a lot of what the goal was in terms of of both supporting young health and safety professionals who who were brought into the field and stayed, and, and we've all had our own various legacies, but it mm -hmm. also trained a lot of, of frontline workers and managers about safety and health, so that that they were better able to both figure out problems and solve problems, and 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 also ask better questions when they needed help from health and safety professionals. So. I think she always saw the real value of, of, of the training education piece of involving of involving workers. The other two pieces I think she was really proud of were were sort of um, really landmark standards that really either got started or got passed during her administration. And and you'd mentioned the Has uh, Hascom standard, which which they really yeah. which they really uh, during her day when they started to focus on that was was on labeling of hazardous materials in the work site and what she would call the right to know, workers having mm -hmm. a right to know. But it also gave employers the right to know what, what was in the products that they were buying, which wasn't always mm -hmm. something employers knew about, especially small and medium sized right. employers. Uh, so she would, and that didn't finish under her uh, administration. They put out at the very last of her administration before the, before the Reagan administration took over, they put out a, um, their version of a labeling hascom standard and it was one of the first things that the reagan administration did was to pull that back they had an ability to pull back regulations that were promulgated toward the end of the previous administration they could pull those back and they did but that then hmm. started a, a movement of 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 uh, of unions and and nonprofit organizations called cash groups started a movement to have right to know laws passed at the state level uh, across yeah. the country and by the mid by 83, 84, probably half the, half the states in the country had some version of a state yeah. uh, New Directions labeling program. And what happened then was the a lot of the large chemical corporations that have you know national operations, they were faced with having to comply with all these multiple different state regulations. <laughs> yeah. They then went to federal OSHA and asked the Reagan administration under Thorne Octor, we need a national right to know a national HASCOM standard, which is mm -hmm. what we all, you know, eventually got passed a few years later and what we all have today. So that was really an amazing legacy that- uh, Yeah, that, that's really interesting, Mark. In my home state of Minnesota, um, the, the law that supersedes the hazard communication law because we're a state-run OSHA agency, it's called the right to know law. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, it sounds like it came directly from, from what Eula had started. 
um, a long, a long time ago. So that, thank you for that yeah. history lesson. I didn't, I didn't know that myself. I knew, I know when the law was adopted in my home state and it was right around the same time period that you're talking about. Yeah. It, it finished up around 86 or so. And there yeah. were you know, some nuanced legal issues after that, but mostly, yeah. you know, until the more recent change with the updating of the, of the uh, MSDSs and the labeling up, up in yeah. the last couple of years. So, the the other regulation I think she took great pride in that often isn't mentioned a lot is is OSHA in 1980 promulgated the access to medical and exposure records, and and oh, that wow. was a regulation that that provided that workers and their representatives unions uh, had a right to the exposure information that employers had, uh, and also that workers had access to their medical information from medical uh, you know medic physical exams and other medical testing that was done on workers. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of the individual OSHA standards had had requirements that that information be collected and that unions mm -hmm. and workers would have rights to it. But what she what her administration did under her guidance was to make that a generic standard. So um, it mm -hmm. didn't when it first came out in 1980, it didn't require employers to collect any additional uh, say exposure records, air sampling, other things. Or, yeah. or any other medical testing, but it simply said that if the employer had these, whether they were required by existing or future OSHA standards or, or the company policy, that if they had those, then they had to make those available on request if workers or their unions made a written request. And there's some restrictions like there always are, but, but it, it became a very broad way for uh, workers in there. And when I worked for various unions, it was a very important standard for us to get information about uh, internal air sampling that employers had done if we were investigating a problem or consultants had done from the outside. Um, and mm -hmm. it allowed it allowed us to really uh, it it allowed for a lot of action and 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 improvement of workplace conditions because sometimes employers would have you know hired consultants and they had gotten you know a, a consultant report but the report might not be very good and so we yeah. could get a copy of it from the union side I would then analyze it and we'd go have discussions about well the consultants you know for example found this you know they found that the uh, exposure, uh, the air sampling showed everything was legal, but we would show the employer that, well, OSHA was working on a new standard or that the TLVs had a much lower exposure limit. And so why not do better? And we could then use yeah. that information to push for better conditions. And I was always surprised how much often, you know, how often we could convince employers to do the right thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So, what have that been? Medical records, you know, for like blood lead testing and asbestos exposures, and yeah, you know, things like that. Yeah. It would have included you know, audiometric screening, like kind of all of those things, all those little—they're not little, but all the regulations that have those requirements in them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, then kind of funnel into this access to records. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, it was it was any sort of medical record that the employer kept, which is interesting yeah. now because, uh, you know, with all the uh, with the pandemic and all that. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to ask about that. Well, okay. with all the pandemic and the yeah. and the medical screening or the other testing that's being done, those things, yeah. even even the temperature screening falls under those requirements of having to be uh, made yeah. accessible to workers and and kept as a as a historical file up to thirty years. And so, it's mm -hmm. it's it's an interesting, far-reaching regulation that uh, I think mm -hmm. you know those of us in the field are just kind of used to it. We just know it's there. 
But but right. many workers and many frontline managers have have never heard of it before, even though there's a requirement for annual notification and and some training about the standard. It's it's not a very well known standard, but it's incredibly useful and powerful standard, not not just for people like me who are advocates from the worker side from a union, but but for employers who then uh, if, if you're working inside a corporation, then there's a reason they have to keep records for a long time that allow mm -hmm. you to see if you're working for them as a consultant or on staff to see what had happened in the past. And many times those records would get lost or disappeared. And mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. it, it you know, it's it's really been something that's quite uh, it's been it's a quite remarkable piece of regulation. Dr. Bingham yeah. saw the need for OSHA to come up with generic standards that applied across the board to big areas of health and safety work in, instead of the model of working on individual issues like things she did. More vertical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she worked on like the benzene standard and the lead standard and the cotton dust standard, which were really important standards. But you know these generic standards cut across could cut across all industries and and have a much wider swath and and what much wider impact over time. Fascinating and yeah. and what a good thing to be talking about today with medical yeah. records, uh, Mark. Yeah. You know and and safety and health professionals who might not have known about that piece or known about that regulation, like you said, who really can be leaning into it right now as we're, as so many employers are doing wellness screenings and all of the things that, that we're doing to, to um, monitor the health of, of employees across, across all companies right now. That's, that's powerful yeah, knowledge yeah. and started with, with Dr. Bingham. How wonderful it, is that? Yeah. And she, I'm sure she would have never imagined that it was going to apply right. to a, to a, a to a worldwide pandemic in terms of, of these issues. But, but I, you know, I've, and I'm sure you've seen these too, Jill, but I, you know, I've seen reports over the last month or so as more employers are reopening and they're, and they're doing more temperature screening that there, there have been some reports of employers who refuse to tell workers what their temperatures are, you know? Oh, wow. And so that's actually then a violation of this standard because you yeah. have to you have to let workers know. Now workers have to make the written request, and so workers have to have some knowledge about the standard. But uh, but my experience <laughs> is it's a it's a really good standard, and it's been really helpful to have it both during this pandemic and during other you know in 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 other lots of other areas I've worked in in the past. We we used it during the Exxon Valdez oil spill to make requests for medical or for not for medical records, but for the exposure records that. Exxon and their contractors mm -hmm. were, were of all the sampling that they were taking during the oil spill. And so we mm -hmm. would use this uh, this generic standard to get access to those records. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So what what else did you learn sitting at the feet of a legend, <laughs> Mark? <laughs> well, it was it was uh, that's what I imagine. You know, like I'm picturing yeah. I'm picturing you and she having these conversations uh, about her life. And yeah. I mean, what an what an honor and what an what an opportunity um, to be able to listen. Yeah, it, and it, collect it, stories. It really was, and it it um, you know I have I have colleagues who are older who actually worked during either worked uh, at OSHA at the time and worked for her who have, you know, their own sets of really amazing stories. And then other colleagues who were active in safety and health uh, during her administration who have lots of other, you know, really amazing, wonderful stories. Uh, but my, but mine mostly came from, you know, the, the work I did with her, but then the, the, the work over the past, you know, decade or so with her, her, um, 
remembering the past and and also commenting on what was currently happening. So she was a yeah. she was always an astute observer of what was happening in safety and health both within OSHA and beyond. And and she was always uh, um, she was always willing to provide her opinion and advice about when she thought things should be done better, faster, bigger. Um, yeah. And so I think she you know she. She she saw our, she saw I think her role as in her later life as really pushing our profession along and pushing us all to do to do more. Um, but she was also really kind, and I, what I remember is how kind she was and how uh, how much fun she was to, to be around with. And I've had I had the mm -hmm. pleasure a couple times with the uh, with the. National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences Worker Training Program. She was a she was a strong suppo supporter of that kind of big worker education program that I know you've been yeah. a part of, and yes. I was a part of for many years. Um, mm -hmm. And and she was she was an advisor to their program, and they they really uh, did a lot of. They would invite her in to 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 provide advice and and a historical perspective on a lot of things. And I remember um, two two specific times I was on panels with her. And one was one was a panel where she was basically giving some of her historical experience to help us understand how we got to where we were and think mm -hmm. about the future. And at one point, I remember she she said to, to all of us, because uh, we're all kind of like we're thrilled she's there and we're all wanting to learn from her. And she said, yeah. she said, you all you all sort of think that that I had a plan when I started <laughs> back with OSHA. She said, mm -hmm. I didn't. I, you know, I had an overall plan to what I wanted to do, but I didn't have any specific plan. She said, you just have to jump in and whatever shows up, you start working on it and you respond and you mm. think about it. And she said, the mm. New Directions program, which so many of you worked under, she said, that was not quite an accident, but it could have easily never happened. But but oh. I was willing to say during my meeting with Congressman Obi that this would be an important thing to work on. And, and, you know, and he responded. She said that was, a, you know, the serendipity of that was something that, that wasn't mm -hmm. planned. And she said that happened over and over again. She said, so what she, her advice to us was go out and do stuff and do what, what's in front of you. You know, don't, don't uh -huh. think that somehow you have to have a master plan to move forward. She said, does, it, does enough, you know, and we're all seeing that now with the pandemic, right? How yes. many of us plan yes. to respond to the pandemic? So we're all we're all running as fast as we can to respond and yeah. keep up, and and we're dealing with questions that we haven't thought of before, or have we don't have strong mm -hmm. answers to. But she mm -hmm. would have said, "Yeah, that's the way this field is, and that's you know part of the joy of it, and it's part of the frustration." And mm -hmm. and not yeah. yeah, not wait for someone to tell you what to do, but just walk just into go it. do it. Yeah. So uh -huh. so that was uh, I think, and then I had another chance on another panel uh, in two thousand thirteen. Where there was actually uh, the NIHS and NIOSH and other agencies held a uh, a, a multi-day conference act basically on safety culture and what is safety culture mm -hmm. and how do you think about it how you define it how do you how do you use the idea of safety culture and so she and I were actually I was paired up with her to to do a a, a summary talk at the end of that at the end of those discussions and so her focus was to kind of look at it from a historical perspective and my focus was to look at it kind of moving forward and what vision maybe for the future. So it was, mm -hmm. it was, it was both great fun because I spent a lot of time with her over several days as we, as we listened and then talked about what the presenters had talked about and how we might summarize this at the end. 
and that was just a great joy. But at the same time, it was sort of like, you know, slightly terrifying because, you know, I have to, you know, sit with her and sound like really like I know what I'm talking about. And you know, I'd been doing this work for 25 years or more at that point, but it was intimidating to uh -huh. be on a on a panel with Dr. Bingham. But she was incredibly kind. And we spent we spent a couple of really fun nights late into the night over over uh, wine drinking and, and talking mm -hmm. about occupational health. And it was really, a, it was a wonderful, wow. you know, a wonderful wow. graduate program, an informal graduate program I'll in say. occupational health. Yeah. Do you recall what she had to say about culture, about safety culture? She, um, she had some concerns about how it was being defined because what mm -hmm. she would often say was, you know, she often didn't see a single safety culture at an organization, right? There were often, you know, lots yeah. of different safety cultures. Workers might have one safety culture. The frontline supervisors had a second one. Maybe top management had a third one. And she hmm. said it's, 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 she said it, it was harder for her to think about how to think about culture as a single, uh, as a single mm -hmm. entity. And, you know, there were a lot of uh, people years ago that were thinking more about culture as a single entity as opposed to multiple cultures. But she thought mm -hmm. the idea, I think she was, she thought the idea made sense in terms of how you create change. You had to understand the cultures within organizations and within a workforce if you're going to make, if you're going to make lasting change. And so, you know, her mm -hmm. historical idea of, of both generic standards and of giving workers and frontline supervisors access to information and responsibility to deal with safety and health was, was really, a, I think, a part of her legacy. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And what an astute observation yeah. uh, for her about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, hmm. I, you know, and you know, from my historical work, I've done a lot of, of looking at the life of Alice Hamilton and, yes. and I have to, you know, especially with her passing the last couple of days, I've really been thinking about in, in, in probably a lot of ways. I mean, she, she really, she really was and is the Alice Hamilton of our generation. And wow. which is, you know, I think I, and I don't say, I say that with, 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 with incredible respect to both Dr. Hamilton, but also to Dr. Bingham. And, you know, mm -hmm. Dr. Hamilton was from the, from my reading of history was, was known to be quite a mentor of, 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 you know, occupational medicine, docs, industrial hygienists and others. Yeah. But I think of the, uh, um, the, the much larger probably impact that, that Dr. Bingham had because there was an OSHA program, there was an expanded health and safety program in the U.S. into the 70s, mm -hmm. 80s, and beyond. And there were, you know, hundreds and thousands of us doing this work. And probably in Alice Hamilton's day, there were maybe hundreds of people doing this work, right? So there, there mm -hmm. were way more people doing this work that she could impact than Dr. Hamilton probably ever envisioned would be doing this work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, there's a, a larger footprint by the time uh, Dr. Bingham came around. Yeah, I mean, I, I, at, at yeah. some of the, at some of the, the NIHs and other meetings I've been at over the years, as she got, uh, as she was, you know, getting older, we would, we would, uh, sort of have discussions to say we ought to make a list of everybody who worked under the New Directions Grant Program, who got their start or some yeah. early part, to see how many, how many of us there really were, and maybe even do like yeah. a a genealogy of, of where we all ended up and, and, you know, and so it's, oh. and, and 
Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, and we never did it because when you started talking about the names of people that we all knew, it kept expanding and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And and it would Hmm. become almost like, wow, that's such a big project. Maybe we'll do it next year. You know, (laughs) what a big ripple. Because it, you know, it it was so large. And Uh so, uh, Uh yeah. So when she when she left the Carter administration, she went back into teaching. Is that right? She did. She returned to the University of Cincinnati and back to her mm-hmm. toxicology lab research. Uh, but also, yeah. uh, she was she I believe she was back. I believe she was dean of the school of public health, and she also and she continued on with with some of her research. But she also, uh, you know, really continued on with her policy work and her her advocacy sure. work and um i remember stayed connected that in that regard. yeah yeah because mm-hmm. i think coming out of osha with all that policy work it would just be natural to continue that and and she mm-hmm. certainly was a figure that people were were looking at and and would you know and she had lots of opportunities to speak about her both osha experience and beyond um i <laughs> i can remember her um uh her speaking out in the middle 1980s as part of a of a coalition of occupational and and environmental health advocates looking at the connection between occupational and environmental health issues and so Mm -hmm. uh, she and she certainly was someone who saw that connection um both from her time in osha and i think before that but one of the things i remember she did um she did at osha was she um before she left osha she, because of her toxicology experience uh, studying carcinogens, that she had done a lot of work in that area. And when she was at OSHA, one of the things that she said she worked on was trying to develop a generic carcinogen standard to try to deal with carcinogens in the same way that the HASCOM standard and the, and the medical access rule, rather than deal with individual exposures, deal with, you know, with the whole issue. And so she mm-hmm. she had been working on a generic carcinogen standard. It never went into effect. But part of the standard was to reach out and try to develop a, a uniform generic cancer standard across EPA and other other agencies that dealt with carcinogens so that the federal yeah. approach was uniform and that everybody didn't have their own version of a carcinogen standard or that the standards were different for each carcinogen. You know, and we you sort of see that with... The differences, yes, that's so yeah, wise. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you can look back to some of the, you know, vinyl chloride and benzene and then some of the more modern standards of formaldehyde and and uh, and silica dust. And, you know, you, the standards aren't uniform. There's a lot of similarities, but they're not uniform. And she mm-hmm. she had, I think, this vision that there that we could develop a uniform standard that would, number one, you know, would 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 represent the way to regulate carcinogens. So employers and everybody, workers would know kind of what that framework looked like, but it would also allow us to more quickly regulate uh, carcinogens yeah. because if you had a certain amount of animal and, and human data, then you could say it fell under the carcinogen standard and then it was re- something was regulated without going through, you know, the 12 or, 12 or more years of standard setting. You know, the benzene standard yeah. took over 12 years to go get into place. You know, the silica dust standard took decades mm-hmm. to, to be put into place. And mm-hmm. so, you know, mm-hmm. one of her frustrations was OSHA's the the difficulty OSHA had of promulgating standards in a timely manner when they needed to be to protect workers. Isn't that the case? Yeah. I mean, there. I think that's one of the misconceptions of the agency. You know, employers believe like, how am I supposed to keep up with this stuff? It changes so often. Yeah. <laughs> Which 
it does not. Yeah. And <laughs> it does not. And you're testifying to that yeah. now. <laughs> and I remember that yeah. when I was uh, in Alaska during during the oil spill, because the benzene standard had recently uh, been updated in '87, '88, and and I mm-hmm. remember working. I was work. I was again working with the laborers' union, the painters' union, and their contractors. And I would hear both union members and their contractors say. Wow, you know this this OSHA standard. We'd never heard of it. It's just brand new. How did this get sprung on us at the last minute? And I remember saying, "Well, here's the, you know, OSHA started this in 1977. This isn't brand new. You know, the your, you know, the the large employer associations, the industries, the oil companies had had been involved in this for a long time. And you know, this isn't something brand new. And of course, you know, if you're a frontline worker or frontline supervisor, that's not something you're going to be watching. And so. But once they heard about it, they said, oh, well, you know, we wish you would have we wish you would have been involved earlier. We could have, you know, given given some good advice on how to write the standard or how to how to do this. Wow. But uh, but that helped because then they didn't feel the animosity toward toward OSHA that, oh, you just sprung this on us. It was like, oh, well, we need to figure out how to get more involved early on. And, and yeah, and have yeah a it shouldn't just it. be the large corporations yeah. that have a hand in it, you know, smaller yeah. construction firms and others. And and I think OSHA's, you know, to its credit over the years uh, has done a better job probably of reaching out to 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 stakeholders yeah. to try to get mm-hmm. that. But, you know, they still have the same problem of it taking decades to update or, or set a <laughs> right. new standard. I mean, we're we're, we're now right. facing the you know, the, the there's a push for a pandemic. Uh, infectious disease standard that OSHA's actually had a draft standard they've been working on for almost a decade since after H1N1, wow. and you know it's you know it doesn't look like it's going anywhere soon. It would be it would be helpful if it was if it was enacted now, but mm-hmm. you know maybe sometime mm-hmm. in the future. Gosh, I hope yeah. so. And this carcinogen standard you're talking about that has not seen the full legs that Dr. Bingham intended. Yeah, it was one of those things that they didn't they didn't finish up. Um, they didn't get into place before they before they finished her administration. And, you know, if she would have had a second yeah. term, you know, we probably would have seen a lot more of these generic standards, I suspect, coming yeah. out. And uh, right. but but she did. I mean, she was able to promulgate. I mean, she started the she started the uh, OSHA had already drafted a benzene standard. They'd already been working on a lead standard and they were already working on a cotton dust standard. And she she mm-hmm. got those major standards through for specific toxins. That was and that was mm-hmm. a lot and um, mm-hmm. and the the one that I think she she that she was the proudest of and the one that I think she has a, a really amazing legacy on is really the cotton dust standard, which which isn't mm. looked at much anymore because that industry's really not become a you know it's really it's really uh, died down as a major industry in our country sadly, mm-hmm. but uh, but this standard was a major. F- uh, internal and external fight within within with OSHA, as they were developing their final draft in the in the late nineteen uh, seventies. Um, uh, that was at the same time there was a lot of pushback from employers, but also economists inside the Carter administration and other places that there needed to be cost benefit analysis done on all OSHA standards and other agency standards, so that you would. You know, look at the cost versus the savings in workers' lives and illness, and and she was opposed to that. Prop- she was yeah. opposed to that kind of very defined proposition, but not. Yeah, right. Define a value yeah. of life. So mm-hmm. so um, mm-hmm. so at one point there was a, a sort of she she said it wasn't quite a showdown, but it's always described as sort of a showdown where 
she needed final approval from the White House to promulgate a cotton dust standard, which looks a lot like the one that's on the books now, which focuses on engineering controls and work practice controls and then respirators as a you know final as a final option which we in industrial hygiene would call our hierarchy of controls and it's the way we yes. look at these things right because you, you do engineering yeah. controls first and PPE last and so yeah. uh, but but the uh, a lot of the there were economic advisors in the Carter administration that really wanted her to ch wanted President Carter to tell her that she had to do PPE as the primary focus and not require engineering controls. And that would have lowered mm -hmm. the, that would have lowered the cost of employer compliance with the standard. And she mm -hmm. uh, steadfastly refused to do that. And so she describes a meeting at one point where, where she <laughs> and Ray Marshall, who was her boss at the head of the Department of Labor, were called to a meeting with President Carter and the economic advisors. And he was gonna make his decision on this, this point. <laughs> and so, she had decided that if he decided against her, she would resign. Um, wow. Um, and that, and her staff knew that. So when she went off to, to the to the uh, White House, they they expected that if she held they, their breath. Yeah, they didn't know if this was <laughs> yeah. the end. And this is, and so she said, we went to this meeting. This is a big deal to go to the White House. And she had met the president when she got uh, confirmed, and she had met him on the, the, the Willow Island uh, tower collapse that happened in West Virginia uh, after, in her administration. And she had gone to talk to him about that. He had asked for her to talk to her about that. But, but this was a meeting and she said, she said she, what she took with her as, as a, a prop, but to boltress her argument on engineering controls, is she took a, a diagram that showed the industrial hygiene um, uh, hierarchy of controls. You know the standard triangle that we all know, yes. right? The pyramid. Yes. We, we all we, know, and that so many people suddenly, outside of our profession, know now because of the right. Pandemic. And the CDC has now yeah. used it, and so. But she said yeah. she went to that. Now she knew that President Carter was an engineer, and she had known that from some of his from her earlier discussions. He was really a at heart an engineer, and she showed him mm -hmm. and she described the hierarchy of controls and defended why they wanted to use engineering controls first and the other hierarchy of controls. And she said, you could see it resonate with him and it made sense as an engineer. And at that meeting, yeah. he said, we're gonna do what Dr. Bingham wants. And much <laughs> to the dismay of his economic advisors. And she said, she said, you know, she was grateful and, and, and when she, but she said, I got back to the office, you know, we came back to the office and she said, it's such a, it's such a, a different experience to go to the White House and be in the Oval Office and have the president make decisions that, that we said, when I came back to the office and I got out of the elevator, that all my staff were lined up on either side of the elevator. And she said, <laughs> everybody looked at me and they thought that I had lost and they all were upset. <gasps> they thought I had resigned. And I said, no, we won. And, but she said it was such an overwhelming experience that she was so serious when, they, when the elevator doors opened that then they celebrated. And they, and they put mm. out the cotton dust standard that, um, you know, it has, it has some changes, and, but it was upheld with a, with a Supreme Court decision. And the basic idea of, of cost-benefit analysis strictly was, was not upheld. And um, and the idea of engineering controls was upheld. So you know, in, wow, what a great yeah. story! And had that not happened, we might be facing you know a, a, a you know a generation of OSHA standards that really saw PPE as the first 
uh, first response to a worker health hazard rather than the, rather than the hierarchy of controls that our profession really has has shown to be an mm -hmm. important part of our work, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. What what a what a legacy, and and yet there's more to be done um, for everyone who's listening. Yeah. Like um, you know, there's there's much more to pick up from where Dr. Bingham and others have have left yeah. off. Yeah. Mark, when you when you talked with her, you had mentioned that um, that she was a mom yeah. and yeah. a single mom. She, did she ever tell stories about what it was like being a, a mother um, and a safety professional and how those things crossed over, if ever? Uh, what what she talked about was uh, was when she was telling me the the uh, her reluctance to take on the position at OSHA was that when she yeah. decided to do it, that she knew this was going to be hard. And, and hard on her children, and that this was a that that this was a you know a real concern she had. And so, what she described was how she would, you know, she would work hard all during the week, and then she would take all her work on the plane with her and fly back to fly back to Cincinnati. She lived in uh, in uh, I believe she lived in Kentucky at the time, and she would fly back to spend the weekend uh, to be a mom and be with her kids. And, you know, and also to work. And then she would fly back on Monday and she'd fly back to D.C. And so she she did this to for a greater part of the, you know, her time at, at OSHA. And so she said it was really hard. But, you know, she you know, she always she said really kind things about the tolerance of her children with to put up with that life. And and her mother was a big mm -hmm. help to help with the children and other and lots yeah. of other friends and colleagues who were both supportive and helpful and how important that was. But uh, but I yeah. think, you know, she she's you know, I, I think she, she always felt like she had some regret that she did that. But she also knew it was important to do this work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, her life would have certainly been really different. It would have been an amazing mm -hmm. life, I think, as a toxicologist mm -hmm. and a and a researcher at the university. But, you know, her life was certainly really different with with because of going to work for OSHA and making that decision. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to hear from, from her family as well and what they, what they called their mom back then. I know yeah. that. And they were, they were little when she took that job too. Yeah, they right? were, they were. I, and I didn't yeah. know her family. I, I met, I met one of her daughters later in life who would, when I was in Cincinnati a few times or, and I knew that her daughter would, you know, her daughter would help her get to the airport and make sure she got on the plane to fly to some advisory committee yeah. meetings or other things. And, uh -huh. you know, then other people would meet her on the other end and we'd make sure she was well taken care of. Because toward the yeah. end of her life, I mean, she was she was she was still actively doing uh, working on advisory panels and committees and doing work, you know, at, at 89. And she just turned 90 recently. And she had macular wow. degeneration, which made, you know, all that much more difficult. And she had some other uh -huh. ailments of of age and as, as as I'm turning 64 65 I'm you know seeing how much harder it is to mm -hmm. do this this kind of work now than it was 20 years mm -hmm. ago I'm remarkable it, I'm re, I'm just impressed that she was doing this at that stage of her life no kidding. and uh you know but you know oh, more power mm -hmm. to her and I and I was you know really honored to have spent the time I spent with her and and worked on projects with her in those last you know, 15 years yeah. and, uh, you know, it'll... yeah, a full life contribution for yeah, sure. Yeah. And, for I, sure. and I always think of her you know, saying, just get out and do stuff. Just go do what's in yeah. front of you and go do it and, and make, you know, yeah. make an impact and do something that helps. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, Mark, and as we're getting ready to close today, um, I want to make sure that um, in our show notes um, that we include um, not only a link to your YouTube channel where people will be able to to check out some of some of the footage and and hear hear yeah. Eula Bingham's voice um, in her own words. But also, I think I would like to include the um, the link to the medical access to that regulation. So if anyone's listening isn't familiar with it, that they have it right at the ready as well. Wonderful. That would be yeah. that would be a wonderful yeah. thing to do. I think a, a link to that regulation. OSHA has some good documents and and you know and guidance yeah. documents on it also. But um, but I'd really encourage people yeah. to go to the YouTube channel and and I'll I'll be able to set up a a, a, a special tab which will have uh, the videos that include her Dr. Bingham speaking from from back in the 70s and into the 80s. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so I'll, I'll have a link to that that people can go to. And you if you put it on this on with the podcast yes. and then people can go, and I'd really encourage people to go hear Dr. Bingham in her own words, speaking as both assistant secretary yeah. and after that about safety and health, because she's really, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, she's really, uh, a, a, an important figure in our work and, and, uh, we still can learn from her after all these years. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was I was listening to a, a video and she was asked to give advice to anyone who was starting out in the health and safety career. And her answer was, um, if you really care about people, you'll care about workers. Yeah. And she said, you have to go into terrible workplaces. And she said, if it grabs you, you'll have it your whole yeah. life. And she said, you know, you have to have it with your heart. And uh, truly, she did. Yeah, thank you, Jill. That's a great. That's a, a great quote from her. She what? What I remember her talking about her when the Willow when the Willow Island um, cooling towers collapsed and and fifty some workers were killed, and she got to the scene. I mean, she they went immediately to the scene, and 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 you know it was a long OSHA investigation. But she talked about how how just horrific it was, and the you know the death and desolation, and then. You know, talking with the families and and talking with coworkers, and she the impact that that really was a was a was a was a huge impact on her. And in her press conferences months later, talking about OSHA's role, she really started off by remembering the workers and their families, and not wanting us to forget yeah. that there are people that are part of why we do this work. You know, it's not just yeah. regulations and workplace settings; it's people. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's the way to lead. Mm -hmm. Mark, thank you so much for sharing your stories today, for sharing the history and work of of Dr. Bingham. Uh, What what an honor and privilege to be able to archive um, some of her stories today. Thank you. And thank you, Jill. It's been an honor to to be talking to you about Dr. Bingham. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution and making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro community group on Facebook. And if you're not subscribed and want to hear past or future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player that you'd like. You can also find all of the episodes at Vivid Learning System com slash podcast. We'd love it if you leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It helps us connect the show with more and more safety and health professionals like Mark and I. 
If you'd like to have a suggestion for a guest, including if it's you, you can contact me at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. And until next time, thanks for listening.